you're listening to Prairie Justice, a Greg Sanders Vigilante podcast. Welcome back, folks, to Prairie Justice. This is Ranger Gord again speaking at you. Um, we are going to be doing a review of the Stargirl Spring Break Special number one, so no action comics or particular vigilante stories. However, vigilante is involved, otherwise we wouldn't be doing it. So this is a brand new comic. We've been talking about it all winter and been anticipating uh, so I thought that we didn't want to let this opportunity to go by without having a little chat about it and some of my views about this, uh, what this special is all about. And uh, it won't be like a regular sort of an action comics uh, radio serial um, sort of a podcast. I'm just going to just do a, just do a straight up raw review uh, based on my observations and what I see on the page. And if you have not seen this and you care about spoilers, uh, you might not want to listen to this episode until you actually have seen the uh, Stargirl Spring Break Special Number 1, which is available now on Comixology and I suppose in uh, local comic shops everywhere. And I would love to say it's available in uh, corner stores and uh and that sort of a thing but hey this is the 2021 and apparently we now can't do that thing that we've been doing since 1935 so you'll have to seek this uh this comic out where you can if you're listening to this podcast i'm sure you know how to do that so find this comic and uh have a look at it and after you do have a listen to uh this podcast uh also be doing a little bit of reader feedback after the review and um, I think I'll just get right into it. I don't believe I'll bother with any podcast promos this week or Greg Saunders' vigil, uh, radio roundup. I just sort of wanted to put out a quick and dirty podcast uh, regarding this special before I get into the uh, the next extensive uh, leading comics number two Um a series of shows that will be coming up in the next few months. And uh, as we've said before, uh, reviews will happen when reviews happen uh, through these summer months because I am in the tourism business. And as I speak here today on June 10th, 2021, my museum has officially reopened to the public. So I'm going to be very busy and it's hay fever season and my voice doesn't always hold out in this sort of a thing. So uh, you might not be hearing those shows until much later. So I hope this shall suffice. And I believe after the spring break special, I will uh, not only read the letters, but I think I'll drop in a, a Greg Saunders radio roundup, radio rodeo. I can never remember the name of my own column and uh, give you a little bit of uh, a fun little Western tune to leave you off for the summer. So, without further ado, here comes Stargirl and the return of the Seven Soldiers of Victory. And now my review of the Stargirl Spring Break Special. Number one, well let's just call it a number one just in case this becomes an annual uh, tradition. 
it also might become an annual condition because I don't think DC ever want, likes to uh, continue numbering. I think they, if it came out next year, they'd just call it a new number one. But at any rate, <laughs> this is the uh, 2021 version of the return of Stargirl back into the DC Universe. Now, while I'm on that note, I'd just like to comment on one thing. I honestly don't know what counts as DC continuity right now. I haven't read much for DC Comics on a regular basis since about halfway through my bailing out of the New 52. I, I dipped in a little bit during the rebirth, but I haven't seen anything, you know, beyond a little bit of this Infinite Crisis stuff. My apologies, that should be Infinite Frontier. And uh, I know nothing about metal. I really don't know what's going on as far as continuity. What I'm told that uh, the metal series basically ended with the uh, concept that, hey, if it's continuity you like, there it is. So it's basically everything goes. So I guess we're somewhere back where uh, we were pre-crisis. Now, Crisis on Infinite Earths, you might think it gets a bad rap from me. Now, the first thing I'd like to say, when that first came out, I was on board. I was a fan. I thought the whole thing was a tour de force. I thought it was an amazing story as a story. I guess it's just sort of like uh, religion and politics. I guess that a good idea should never be responsible for its followers. And I guess my problem with was what came along after the crisis and even at that, there was a great burst of creativity. We had John Byrne's um, Superman revision. We had George Perez's revision. We had, uh, of course, uh, Frank Miller and all of the different uh, new takes on Batman. And, of course, Bwahaha Justice League. And the one that I'm probably going to come up uh, to talk about is, was Green Arrow and the Longbow Hunters. Now, these were all good ideas, but, uh, and Hawkworld, that was another one. Timothy Truman's Hawkworld, and then John Ostrander carried on afterward in the series. These were all great ideas, but for some reason, have issues that totally told us that we had to forget what we knew. You know, um, you know, it's not as if DC Comics broke into my house and stole all my long boxes from before 1985, and I never treated the crisis that way. I basically said, you know, well, if this is what you do, if you want to re-trigger Superman or Wonder Woman at number one, at, at day one, or re-trigger a new Green Arrow, that's fine. But I guess what bothered me is how the concept of Earth 2 was treated. And certainly it uh, didn't bother me as bad as it did Roy Thomas, who had been given the understanding that his Earth 2 would have been left alone. Um, you know, there was a great many concepts that he had grown along with it. The DC Comics uh, upper gray heads decided, hey, Roy, we're screwing up Titans, we're screwing up Legion superheroes. Hey, you might as well have your world screwed up too. And they did away with Earth 2 and then kept it as kind of a concept of it in a, on a sort of a new Earth. And then uh, members of the Justice Society who had been Golden Age characters such as Superman, Batman and Robin, Wonder Woman, the Marvel Family, Green Arrow and Speedy, and Aquaman, 
were just purposely, you know, slid under the covers. And uh, what we got was new, new triggered, new counted th things. But uh, in the time it took to say that, we got, uh, we had problems. We had problems almost immediately. And if you're a comics fan and you're reading this, I don't need to recount any of that. Um, you understand what they are. Probably the first one was removing Superboy from the mythos of the Legion. And that just tore the guts right out of that book for a while until it started a series of reboots. And it was really strange at that point in time. It had had, it had a, probably a good 30-year continuity that was unbroken. And all of a sudden we've had nothing but Legion reboots ever since. Well, in the concept of Earth 2, you know, when we're talking here about Vigilante and we're going to be talking about the Seven Soldiers, their bit of a continuity was all of a sudden Green Arrow and Speedy didn't exist in the Golden Age, even though that's where they were created. And that's going to become an issue in this, well, issue. And I will uh, try to keep that on even keel just so you know where I come from. I'm not against new stories, I'm not against creativity, and I'm not against throwing a patch in every now and then if it's something that will work but will the patch that comes along in this special work or was it even needed at this point in time well you be the judge so we begin with our cover and we have our star of the star girl specials uh, courtney whitmore uh, riding her uh, cosmic staff and beneath her is her uh, stepfather and former Seven Soldier Victory known as Stripesy, Pat Dugan, who is now a uh, character with a robot exoskeleton named Stripe. And no, I don't know the acronym off the top of my head. Let's just call it Stripe and just forget about that. Trying to remember where the dots are. What I love about this uh, cover is it basically shows us that this is going to be a Seven Soldiers of Victory story. And of course, they have been very absent in a for a very long time and of course uh, in great seven soldiers of victory tradition there are eight soldiers pictured here actually there are seven soldiers pictured and one pictured as a question mark and a mystery not going to reveal that right now but on the left hand side we have green arrow and this green arrow seems to be the modern day new world new earth however you want to put it oliver queen probably the uh we call him the Bronze Age Oliver Queen, going back to the Green Lantern, Green Arrow era. Um, below him, we have uh, a character that I'm embarrassed that I had forgotten about, and that was Namika, and that is Green Arrow's, Oliver Queen's, sister. Because Robert Queen, Oliver's father, and Namika's father, well, uh, the guy got around. He was, uh, Ollie, the, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree with Ollie. And, of course, at the bottom, we've got Greg Saunders, the vigilante, looking there all in his grim, banditoed, and cowboy-hatted splendor. Over on the right-hand side, we've got uh, Sir Justin, the Shining Knight, sporting a, a blonde beard that we, hadn't, that we uh, did see him wearing in the Stargirl TV show. And of course, this is going to tie in with the TV show, or at least that. And uh, below Sir Justin, we have current modern day New Earth Crimson Avenger, and who, of course, is a black woman 
This is uh, Jill Carlisle, who in the 1990s found the Grimson Avengers pistols in a Detroit gun shop and has been carrying out a sort of a supernatural mission. And in the bottom right-hand corner, we have a headshot in the star of a shadowy figure with a question mark on it. I don't think it's the question or the... And I guess we seem to have ages 13 and up, so it should be safe for me to read. And we open on a rooftop with uh, Oliver and Namika. And they're having a little talk, and they're having a little bit of an archery lesson. Uh, on the second page, we they, they're doing a... They have basically made a zip line with their arrows. And Namika brings up the uh, first green arrow. The clean-shaven guy from the 40s. You know, the Golden Age green arrow. You swiped his M.O. And this is the for the big, first reveal of the uh, book. Ollie replies, I didn't swipe anything. The first green arrow was me. It's a long story involving Clock King and his exhausting determination to unlock the secret of time travel. Okay, boys and girls, get used to time travel when you're talking about the Seven Soldiers of Victory. Even though we've got a grounded set of characters, we've got a cowboy, a couple of archers, couple of guys you know that are basically acrobats in flags in the American flag suits we've got a knight with a sword and we've got a streetwise vigilante named the Crimson Avenger even though we've got all of these characters they are not unknown to do some time traveling over the years and this seems to be sort of a motif that we have come into ever since the uh, the soldiers in Justice League of America 100 way back in 1972 and we have a callback to that where we have here lies the unknown soldier of victory and uh, spoilers for 1972 comic we know that it's Wing who is the Crimson Avengers uh, sidekick or partner I prefer and of course this is uh, Green Arrow thinking back longly about good times and hard times and suddenly Namika co comes on to her. You were the Golden Age Green Arrow. And there it is folks. There's our continuity dump for the day. But we're going to remove into the action because who comes in but Jill Carlisle, the Crimson Avenger. Uh, right out of the, the, the red mist that uh, Lee Travis used to use. Namika's never met her before but he's she implores that Lee Travis needs your help. And we've never really understood what makes um, Jill Carlisle tick other than a motive to avenge uh, the deaths of those who have been killed before their time prematurely. I suppose yeah, we're, we're, we should uh, have the star of the, the series, Courtney Whitmore. She's in class. And it's a beautiful spring day in Blue Valley High. And she gives us a backstory how she moved from L.A. to Nebraska after my mom married a nice guy named Pat Dugan. And, of course, she has to reveal that she is Stargirl. And we get a, two a nice two-page splash that is a callback to our cover. Uh, with the exception that uh, we also have a balloon, or two balloons showing us Courtney and uh, Pat Dugan in his red his carrot topped uh, civilian identity and the seven soldiers of spring break and this is a good a time as any to catch you up on the credits jeff johns is the writer and of course jeff johns is the 
creator of Stargirl and the Courtney Whitmore character. And you should probably know that it's probably Jeff Jones's most personal um, work that he has ever done. Of course, Jeff Jones is a very high muckety-muck in the DC Entertainment world, both in the movie and the comic book side. But Courtney Whitmore was very much designed after his teenage sister, who was killed in a uh, in a still unsolved plane crash that happened over um, the Bay of New York. I believe she was her flight was coming out of JFK, and uh, for some reason it crashed. And the uh, moving on, we have Todd Hawk artists, and we've seen a lot of Todd over the years. Uh, colorist is Hi-Fi because we talk about the companies that do coloring now, not the people. Rob Lee is the letterer. And I should say that uh, you know, usually when you think of lettering in this time, day and time, you think of computerized, but uh, there seems to be some hand lettering going on too. Um, I honestly don't know the aspects of how lettering is done right now. Hawk and Hi-Fi have done the cover. Mike McCone and Luis Guerrero have done the variant cover. I don't want to know anything about that. And your editor is Andrew Marino. I believe this is probably taking place in the scene that we saw back in the Infinite Crisis preview special. Sorry folks, once again that should read Infinite Frontier special. Where Courtney and Stripe have gotten the phone call from the Vigilante. And they have arrived uh, via Stripe's uh, robot suit to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And of course, Myrtle Beach is one of those great spring break places, and everybody's on the beach. And the nice part I do like about this DC universe is apparently nobody's worried about COVID on the beach. <laughs> I'm being very sarcastic, folks. We're going to get some stun, and Courtney is carrying her suitcase and her staff in a bag through the hotel lobby. Um, they check in. Courtney unpacks her, her costume. Mourns her loss about why she can't be any one of the kids down there on the beach. But you know what, Courtney? Suck it up. It's no big deal. We do our job. And we go back to Blue Valley and we wait for the call for the Justice Society or some bad guy to pop up. Like always. Well, Courtney, she is a teenager. Uh, we check in with Mom back in Blue Valley. And, of course, we have to have the stereotypical thing that every time uh, Pat Dugan does something, he has packed along a picture frame that shows him with all of the seven soldiers of victory. Oh, there's eight soldiers in this picture, guys. Wing is here in his yellow costume. This is his first appearance here in this story. Strange thing is I've never known Wing to ever have a symbol on his chest the way... Other superheroes do, and he's got a strange one here. It seems to be a question mark. I may have just dropped a hint. And now we're at the last Roundup restaurant. And, of course, this is probably one of the Greg Sanders Roundup restaurants that we found out that Greg had invested in way back in the 90s, uh, I think about 92 or so, when an elderly Greg showed up to help uh, El Diablo in a Texas town and was opening up a Roundup restaurant there. Courtney thinks she sees Greg, but it's just another guy with a cowboy hat on. Hey, it's South Carolina. There's going to be guys with cowboy hats on. And they're having their burgers and fries and a little chat. And, uh, of course, 
we have to have this longing thing of Stripesy remembering the seven soldiers. And we see Sir Justin, and he still, how he still blames himself for not being there when the Arthur and the other knights died, and he's still haunted by nightmares of that. And down in the corner, we have the Golden Age Green Arrow and Speedy. Uh, Pat reaffirms what Ollie has already told us. We, we hear that Green Arrow and Speedy took the opposite trip that Justin did. They were thrown from the present to the past. Oliver and Roy put on a brave, happy face, but we always knew there was something they weren't telling us. They said they were homesick. So that confirms that some point in time, wherever you think Oliver and Roy um, had their origins, whether it was in the actual 1950s or it was like 10 years ago, that they were thrown back in time and they in fact became their own progenitors in the 1940s. And folks, that patch is weird to me. Um, Pat talks about the Crimson Avenger, Lee Travis, and Wing. And Wing is here with that question mark on. So I guess that, uh, that answers the question from the cover. Wing is the missing soldier. We almost could have guessed it. If you had ever read JLA 100, you knew it. Uh, we get a shots background uh, or back flash shot flashback shot sorry of Lee way back in his 1930s costume when he's saving the wing from a from a uh, I guess a gang at some point and then how Lee died and this was in a story that actually did occur in DC Comics presents in the 1970s steering a, a ship that had a explosives on a burning ship full of explosives out of New York Harbor and out into the bay and that took his life and it goes finally there's vigilante well we might as well spend some time the son of a small town sheriff Greg Saunders had big dreams of being a singer after a blow up with his father Greg left Wyoming for New York City that's the first time we've ever heard of a problem with his dad but I would suppose it happens to uh, stringy farm boys I wouldn't know anything about that Oh, I should also say that uh, Saunders here is spelled with the U. I hate that, but I guess I better get used to it. Days later, Greg's father was murdered, and Greg returned home to find his father's killers, brought them to justice, and then he heard of someone else that needed help a few dusty towns away. Since then, Greg's wandered from town to town. He's never settled down and had a family. None of the soldiers did, really, except me. That's why the team meant so much to us, even if it did to anyone else. So Courtney's getting a, a 101 into the Seven Soldiers of Victory. And of course, once, everyone's, every, once everybody's having a moment, once again, Jill Carlisle busts into the middle of the restaurant with her, with her red crimson dust all over the place. And uh, she concentrates, squeezes her eyes a little bit. Next thing you know, Courtney and Pat are dropped into a hole in the middle of the red mist. And when they look up, there's Greg Saunders saying, Howdy! And we also see Justin, Jill, Namiko, and Oliver. So we've gotten the band back together. That's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh my gosh, we actually have seven soldiers of victory. Oh wait, the horse-winged victory is there. Okay, that's eight. Welcome to Seven Soldiers of Victory Math, folks. 
And there's the tearful reunions, handshakes. Um, Namiko introduces herself as Red Arrow. And Courtney and her having a little bit of moment. And of course, Jill always has to jump in and interrupt and, and hand out some orders. Which Courtney really never takes too well. If you know anything about Courtney Whitmore, you surely shouldn't tell her what to do. And there's an interesting thing here. Uh, Jill, the Crimson Avenger, she says, I wear a blindfold because I see only what I need to. Gee, I hope you're not a uh, member of the, uh, a member of the uh, anti-vaxxing crowd, folks. And we get uh, back to uh, a story that has never really been told, only ever in flashback, and and that's the story of the Nebula Man, a creature created by their the Seven Soldiers' first vision, the Hand, which threw them into time, a time stream which the Justice League of America and the Justice Society of America rescued them from way back in uh, Justice League of America 100. Have I mentioned that comic yet? And, of course, we go back to the uh, retell the, the death of Wing, which Jill Carlyle really seems to remember, even though she's not uh, Lee Travis. But she seems to give want to give the seven soldiers a mission, that they must save Lee Travis. Hey, wait a minute. Did I mention that Lee Travis is dead? I think I did. So this confuses the uh, the soldiers. Now all of the soldiers leave back up into again into Jill Carlisle's red mists, except for Courtney and Namika, who stay behind where Namika uh, expounds to Courtney um, how Oliver still blames himself for Roy falling off the wagon. Of course, that's Roy Harper, Speedy, also known as Red Arrow, also known as Arsenal. And that's also a callback to one of the most famous comics ever, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, number number 85 from 1971. Run of Danny O'Neill and Neil Adams, their so-called relativity or hard-traveling heroes era, where Speedy was found to be a heroin junkie. And of course, uh, DC has dined out on that, that fact several times. And Namika also brings back that uh, who, who the dead soldiers are, and Roy is apparently dead at that point. This point in time, um, as is Sylvester Pemberton, as is Wing, and Namika brings back that uh, all the kids ever associated with the Seven Soldiers of Victory are either royally screwed up or dead. And of course, Sylvester Pemberton was killed by one of his own members of Infinity Inc. and. Infinity Inc. number 51 in 1988. Of course, Infinity Inc. was the team that Sylvester Pemberton founded, along with many uh, legacy heroes and characters from the Justice Society of America. And now, Namika brings up who the villain of the piece is going to be, and it's the Clock King. Yes, the Clock King. And if you aren't familiar with the Clock King, he's not related to the villain on the, on the Batman TV show. He's one of uh, Green Arrow's villains from the early 1960s. To say what he looks like, he basically he wears a clock in his face just like a scuba mask. And we reveal that, it, that Clock Kings, after the, that one of the things that uh, was on the ship that Lee Travis steered out of New York Harbor, was a time machine built by Per Degaton. <laughs> If you're ever going to be a, a, a fan of Earth 2 characters, get used to Per Degaton. He's the Kang of Earth 2. 
So Namika and Courtney take a ride on the staff as Red Arrow and Stargirl over Myrtle Beach and they run into the other soldiers who are in a bit of a scrap. Um, Ollie's fighting the Clock King on what else? A giant flying clock. While the rest of the soldiers seem to be fighting pterodactyls. If my, my daughter was here she'd say Quetzalcoatlus. We come from dinosaur countries. We know our dinosaurs. Clock King and and, and Oliver are having a nice heart-to-heart. -heart. And I don't think I've ever seen a, a fight between Green Arrow and the Clock King, actually, that ever went uh, quite this brutal. And apparently uh, he is trying to pick up this, the remains of this ship. And of course, ha for some reason, seems to have triggered Degaton's time machine, uh, which is bringing in all of this prehistoric creatures over Myrtle Beach. Ollie gets hit by a, some kind of a temporal blast, which exposes not only himself, but also his Golden Age self with the clean-shaven character, but also his Dark Knight Returns version, who had lost his uh, left arm. Uh, the ship has been resurfaced. Clock King seems to have brought it back up. Clock King's showing a lot more power than we've ever seen him. Uh, he's always been kind of a joke of the DC Universe. In fact, in the Waha Hero of Justice Le era of Justice League International, he was actually a member of the Justice League Antarctica. And basically, that was five ineffective villains who were supposedly to have reformed and were sent by the Justice League to protect the, the Antarctic continent because the, the JLA didn't think that they, they could probably uh, screw that up too badly, and of course they always did. But suddenly Courtney sees something all through all of this temporal nonsense, and we see the original Lee Travis in his skin-tight uniform. Yes, the original Crimson Avenger. And uh, it looks like Jill Carlisle has finally gotten him out of the fire, and this is probably the first time we've ever actually seen Jill and Lee together in a panel. And Courtney sees that, as Stripe implores Courtney to get at the Avenger, rescue him, while Namika goes after Kelp Clock King, who has incapacitated Oliver with uh, all of these uh, psychological problems uh, brought on by his temporal energy. And then Vidge swings in, and he's uh, basically, he's, he's lassoed himself a Quetzalcoatlus, and he's riding it uh, with his lariat, and he uses that to swing his boot with his spurs. Dave McElveney, are you listening? He's got his spurs on. And there's nothing else is going to get broken but you, King. Uh, for some reason, Jill Carlisle is telling Courtney to stay away. She says, no, I can help. Okay, do you know how to shut down a time machine? And Courtney goes, um, I'm 16 years old. No, but I'll look for the off switch. There you go, Courtney. I like that about you. And the two Crimson Avengers meet, and uh, Lee recognizes her twin Colts. She goes, hey, those are my guns, and if I save you, I'll be free. No, you can't touch me. A paradox will trigger a boom. And who do we see coming next but Wing running in action. It goes, Wing, we can't leave Judy Garrick behind. Judy Garrick, who the heck is that? But there seems to be a couple of shadowy figures following Wing. And they want to get to the north side of this island that's in the bay. And Lee is just seems to be determined to hang on to the helm of the ship. 
and all of a sudden all of the Crimson Avengers of the past seem to fade right into uh, Lee Travis's body and she, he implores Courtney to destroy Degaton's time machine before it swallows up everyone on the beach. It's worth noting that we haven't seen Degaton yet but he he, he doesn't want Courtney to save him, he wants her to save Wing. Because go before I lose control. And we have a big Krakow. Hear Lee Travis say one final thing before the staff goes off. And he says, Victory! And Lee Travis was right. The time machine has imploded. And we're back on the beach. And everybody watching on the beach is happy. Everybody's safe. And at first there were smiles all around. And even Pat was proud without a word of constructive criticism. But then everyone realizes not only had the Clock King disappeared, Lee Travis's body was finally found. We wake up at 3.07 a.m. We seem to be back in Blue Valley. And there was a burial service. Uh, once again, we have another funeral for, for the Crimson Avenger. For, Lee was considered the first one of us to put on a mask even before Wesley Dodds, the Sandman. And Pat and the soldiers agreed to keep in touch. And apparently they've been coming over to every Sunday to the to the Whitmore or to the pardon me to the Dugan Whitmore home in Blue Valley every Sunday night for family dinner. And we see this. We see everybody in civvies. We see Ollie. We see Justin. We see uh, Courtney's brother, Mike. And we see Namiko and Courtney herself. Or sorry, that would be Courtney's mom. And we see Greg wearing a nice western cut shirt, all at a table, enjoying dinner. Everybody except Jill Carlisle. She hasn't come over because we haven't seen her since that day. The guns pull her to places and make her do things. She wants to escape whatever the curse is. But next thing you know, Courtney wakes up in the night and Amiko is coming in her window. And she says, I know everyone says Wing is dead, but... If you're up for it, I've got a pretty interesting lead. Courtney says, let me get my staff. And this is to be continued in Stargirl number one. So that tells us that we've got an, an ongoing coming, folks. A new Stargirl ongoing comic book series. Not surprising, because if you've got the second season of a hit TV show on the air... And you're the CW network that seems to be struggling with its superhero franchises lately. And this one's a hit. Why not capitalize on it? So that'll be enjoyable. I think I will probably subscribe to it. And I will let you know if there are any Seven Soldiers of Victory or Vigilantes oriented things that, uh, that pop up in there. And then we have a real treat, folks. We turn the page after the end. And we have a great pinup picture of the eight soldiers of victory count them oh nine the horse is there <laughs> and just appearing as they did in their 1940s adventures no explanations no cosmic embattlings and they're all lined up around this great star rocket racer and the artist folks is none other than jerry ordway and jerry ordway was one of the great uh, Earth 2 artists uh, he drew All-Star Squadron uh, he may have done some Infinity Inc I don't quite remember uh, he did the power of Shazam but he's a great detail artist and he fits well to the 1940s style so 
This is worth the price of admission, folks. Five ninety nine is a lot for a comic book, but good God, we've got a double spread of Jerry Ordway. And we've got a second story, folks. Begins in Hollywood land, November 22nd, 1940, in a bar room called the Frolic Room, when suddenly it's late at night when a boom breaks through the silence and the, and the clock king, we see the clock king on the floor and he's been knocked over from a time portal by the appearance of, wait for it, Per Dagaton. And we have that one page sequence and we turn the, the corner and we have another pinup which seems to be everybody who has ever been in the Justice Society of America in background. So this is kind of a tribute to two different eras of the Justice Society but wait folks there's more. We have a third era here and it looks to me like we have this story that I, this brief, brief, three-page story that I've just read, which has mostly been a two-page pinup, was called Justice Society Past His Prologue, with Jeff Johns' writer, Brian Hitch's artist, Alex Sinclair, colorist, Rob Lee for letterer, and Andrew Marino for editor. And the, at the forefront, we have a newer version of Justice Society, and this seems to be a tribute to the era of the JSA with more modern era that ran in uh, the years 2000 to 2011 until New 52 took over. And uh, that was in the three titles, JSA, Justice Society of America, and JSA All-Stars. So I don't know whether this means that we're actually going to get a new Justice Society series as well as a Stargirl series. I don't know why you'd start now. DC have only been promising it since Rebirth 2015. But I hope that that BS is over. And I hope we can turn the page on an era of DC. And maybe once again enjoy the Justice Society of, as we have in the past. I think they were just as enjoyable in the 1970s as they were in the 1940s. And they were enjoyable in the 1980s and in the 2000s. So I don't know why we can't do it again. After all, it's just time travel, folks. Oh, but wait, there's still more. We have another gathering of Earth 2 characters. I'm not going to go through the lineup here, but this appears to be the All-Star Squadron and some Infinity Inkers and some other allied characters. Also on the beach, and it's done up another other than the immortal Fred Hambeck. And it's called Where's Stripesy by Fred Hambeck. Oh, there he is. I just found him. Folks, this is this is great. Um, Jerry Ordway pinup, that little three-page Brian Hitch story, and the and now Fred Hembeck. Um, folks, this is a great comic. But now, I have to talk about Green Arrow. When I think of the Golden Age Green Arrow and Speedy, I think of two characters that first appeared in more fun comics in 1941 and then had their Haiti day through the World War II, were members of the Seven Soldiers of Victory. And uh, I guess the problem with the continuity is they were too popular. Unlike most characters, they did not disappear. Uh, that probably was uh, had something to do with Mort Weisinger being the creator of them. But they continued to appear uh, 
not in their own comic, but in various backup strips, uh, such as World's Finest and Adventure Comics, and uh, through the late 1940s and through into the 1950s. That's why it's always hard to find a point in time uh, to pin down where the Nebula Man throws the Seven Soldiers of Victory into the time stream. But in 1958, a man that you may have heard of, called Jack Kirby, uh, was given the strip, and for a few issues in, a, I believe, in Adventure Comics, um, he rejigged Green Arrow for a little bit and gave him a new origin. But unfortunately, uh, uh, unlike a lot of that that was going on about that time with the Flash and Green Lantern and the Atom, Jack didn't think to give Green Arrow and Speedy a new costume, even though he gave them a brand new origin. And he didn't think to change their names. They were still Oliver Queen and Roy Harper. Now that is probably not a problem to anyone until we get to Justice League of America 100. Hey, have I mentioned Justice League of America 100, folks? Great comic. And in that, we learn all about the Nebula Man and the Seven Soldiers of Victory and bringing them back out of the time stream. And that's where Oliver Queen gets to meet himself, his 1940s Earth 2 self. Now, I guess Earth 2's not coming back, but uh, in Crisis on Infinite Earths, they conveniently have the Earth 2 Green Arrow die. You know, he's crushed by a building or killed by a shadow demon or whatever the hell they did with what the people they th thought were a problem character in that story and about a year or so later DC decrees that because Mike Grell wanted to do the longbow hunters he wanted a uniqueness for his Oliver Queen and the Green Arrow I have no problem with that in fact I'm a big fan of Mike Grell I bought the longbow hunters and I bought pretty much every issue of Green Arrow while Grell was on that series through the 1980s. Uh, tremendous series. Uh, some people have problems with it. I thought it was just a, an instance of what comics could be. But uh, I, I guess DC figured that in its, in its wisdom that uh, they didn't want the trappings of another character going around even though they were dead according to Crisis. That would confuse things, you know. We, we seem to have this trouble with confusing everybody. So we come up with patches. And uh, as they did with uh, the, some of the bigger stars, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and such, they just decided, hey, these characters didn't exist. Well, what about the Seven Soldiers of Victory? Well, they didn't have a feature anyway. Who cares? It's just Green Arrow and Speedy weren't in there. So they tried different patches for that over the time. Um, they used Billy Gunn. They used Stuff. Uh, Vigilante Sidekick. They used Wing. And those were all good patches. And that sort of thing. And then they started to uh, want to do other things with the Seven Soldiers. They put TNT and Dan the Dynamite into it. Retroactively. Which I was totally against. Uh, you just totally blew the whole idea of the Seven Soldiers as sort of ground-oriented pulp-type characters to putting, you know, basically who was a, a standard who-cares character uh, in TNT and Dan. You know, TNT and Dan have had other retroactive things done to them. 
And uh, quite frankly, you know, go along with that, that they don't need to be in the Seven Soldiers. But they pretty much did everything but put Green Arrow and Speedy back into the 1940s or revive them. So here we are, we're in the post-metal era. Um, now we're talking about more infinite crises or crises on infinite Earths or earthly crises that are infinite. You know, I don't care. I don't care about any of that. At least DC has decided that this is where Green Arrow and Speedy belong is in that original book. I mean, they can be in the Justice League, they can be in the Titans, whatever. This time travel thing um, where Clock King at some point in time sends them back to relive the 1940s adventures, well, I guess that remains to be seen right now at this point in time. If you can do that... If we can just turn around and, 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 and do this time toss thing, why can't we bring back Earth too? Why can't we just put things back and to a point where we can have a Huntress that is Batman's daughter, a power girl that is did come from Krypton? I mean, a lot of these things have been changed. Some have, some haven't. But it always seems to be that every time uh, DC comes along and tries to put a patch on things, that the hole gets bigger. And you don't have to put, look any further than what happened with Tim Truman's Hawk World, which was a great series back in about 1988-89. But when it went into a regular series, somebody forgot to say that that original series had happened earlier in time. As somebody said, Tim Truman himself said, all they would have had to do is say, this happened five years ago or ten years ago. But... I, <sighs> You know, DC was in this mode of wanting to re-trigger every character. They wanted to re-trigger every character, but then they still wanted their cake and eat it too. And as a result, by about 1994, Hawkman was to the point where DC wouldn't even let anybody talk about him anymore. He just became a problem. Ironically, Jeff Johns kind of fixed that problem in just in, in JSA in his run back around 2002 I want to say so for this green arrow and speedy thing quite frankly when I when I think about it for a character that that's really ground level you know green arrow and speedy are the kind of people who beat up bank robbers and drug pushers and international terrorism what is fixed by throwing all of this cosmic stuff at them and yes I'm aware that they belong to the Titans they belong to the Justice League of America, who also has this sort of a thing going on. It just seems to complicate a character that in the last few years, you know, has seen a resurgence. We just came out of a Green Arrow TV series that lasted eight seasons. When Arrow first debuted, I said, well, I says, I'm going to watch the first season of that because that's probably going to be it. It's never going to last. Well, we know what happened to that. Now we have a Stargirl series. So, folks, that's all I'm going to say on that. Uh, other than, you know, here's the, the uh, caveat. Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you enjoy the play? Um, as I said, I'm not reading DC Comics um, I at this point in time. If they revive a Justice Society, I will read it. If they were revive a Stargirl series, as they seem to be doing, I will read it. 
if they revive a vigilante series, you can darn toot and I'm going to read it. But, you know, the comics aren't for me. And, uh, you know, they have to be able to, for new readers, to glom onto this character. They have to be able to, to follow them. And uh, for the most part, I think we've done well. Uh, Namiko seems to be a great character as Red Arrow. I don't quite know where Roy Harper falls into the continuity. He is apparently dead at this point in time. I'm glad to see Jill Carlisle brought back. I think that was a character with great potential. And in many ways, um, I see a rejuvenation for some of these characters like Vidge, like Green Arrow, and like Pat Dugan in this uh, coming out of this story. So it's nice to know that DC thinks that a vigilante can fit here in the 2020s and uh, that a cowboy in the 40s can, uh, can ride again and still be pretty much the same character he always was. He doesn't have a skull all over his chest, you know, and he isn't grim and he doesn't have uh, three days growth in his beard. Well, how could you tell he's wearing a handkerchief? But, uh, and still a white hat. There you go. All right, folks, that's my review. Well, now let's just take a break for Greg Saunders Rodeo Radio. And whether you're in a place that uh, has cows around or in a place that doesn't, or if you just get to see them on your grill, or if you get to see them on your pasture, or you get to see them on your daily commute like I get to uh, for several miles, it always feels better with cows around. And this is Mr. Corblund, who actually was a former neighbor of mine. So I hope you enjoy this. It's a fun little song. Living in town sometimes brings me down Let me bestow this western blessing and share what I have found May you always have cows around What else you gonna spend that extra money on? What else is gonna get you up hours before dawn? What else is gonna keep you toiling on and on and on? May you always have cows around. Come on, you know that you got too much time on your hands. Not merely enough complication in your plans. You need to invite all of the frustration that you can. May you always have cows around. Everything is better Cows around Living in town Sometimes brings me down Let me bestow this western blessing Leave you saddle bound But you always have cows around What else could make bishops swear Like a sailor might What else can cause such tension Between a man and his wife what else could ever bring all these enhancements to your life? May you always have cows around. What else is gonna get out when you don't close the gate? What else will make you prematurely show your age? 
What else would take a run at you in a fit of bovine rage? May you always have cows around. But everything is better with some cows around. Living in town sometimes brings me down. And although this western blessing leaves you cattle bound, may you always have cows around. Well, there's Hereford, Highland, Simmental, West Black and Main and Juki and Nina, Limousine, Shorthorn, Charlie, Watusi, too, Texas, Longhorn, Corey, any Romanola, Galloway, and Angus, Brahma, Brangus, Jersey, Guernsey, Holstein, hey! Well, you might have had to let them dig for oil and gas. You might have had to turn the place to an exotic game ranch. You might have had to do all kinds of things to raise the cash so you'd always have cows around. Well, how else you gonna lose it all like Daddy did? What else will make sure you leave nothing for your kids? It's too late now, you know it is, you might as well admit That you've a badly flawed and sentimental masochisticness And that despite all the statistics and the advice that you get You will always have cows around, yeah Everything is better with cows around Living in town sometimes brings me down Well, you won't know what you're missing till you hear that sound May you always have cows around May you always have cows around And that was Corblund with Cows Around and ending with the Daily Moos. Yes, all puns are intended here. Yes, there was one time when I thought cows were in my future, but now they are in my pasture. Corblund, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, now we're going to get to a little bit of feedback here. And speaking of music, we're going to talk on the, the, the Twitter uh, from relatively geeky podcast, Professor Allen himself. And he said, uh, thank you for introducing me to such cool Western music, especially the epic guitar song in episode 9. And yes, uh, Professor Allen, that was a corker, and he's speaking of the uh, nine-minute version of Hot Rod Lincoln by the Twang Bangers. And uh, I hope everyone enjoyed that uh, excessively long song and all the fun that the, the lead guitarist had with it. Uh, still on the Twitter... Uh, Mr. Martin Gray, all the way from Scotland. And he sent me the Twitter to tell me that there was actually a review that he posted on Apple Podcasts. And I'm glad he did because, as I've explained before, I have to actually physically go into whatever country that uh, might be reviewing me to ever see my reviews. So uh, Martin was uh, 
kind enough to give me that heads up so I could go to the British store and find that. And five-star review from Martelex and Upping the Vigilante. The Vigilante was one of the most popular heroes of the Golden Age, writes Martin, among the few comic book characters to star in his own movie serial. To the world, Greg Saunders was the Prairie Troubadour, popular on radio and stages across the United States. Little did his fans know that he was also two-fisted, motorcycle-riding modern cowboy, the Vigilante. Aided by his sidekick Stuff, the Chinatown Kid, the Vigilante foiled the plots of the Dummy, Rainbow Man, Scorpion, and more. Beginning with the Vigilante's 1941 debut in Action Comics 42, Superfan... Hey. And history expert Ranger Gord brings his adventures to life as old-time radio dramas uh, before providing incisive, fun commentary. If you're a fan of The Vigilante, this is the show for you. If you're not, this show will make you one. Well, thank you very much there, Martin. I really appreciate it. Oh, and Martin also wants to... We've had a little bit of fun about what color Vigilante's pants and hat should be, and he says I should run a poll. Uh, I'll take that under advisement, Martin. Um, it's not going to happen today or on this show, but we'll see how that works out. And now I'm headed over to my email box to pick out a few letters to read here uh, from vigilantecast at gmail.com. And first up, well, you'd have to expect it, uh, super, speaking of super fans, Dave McElvaney. Greetings, Ranger Gord. The Whip was quite an interesting villain. Um, he's speaking of Episode 9. Sorry, folks. Um, I think his use of the Whip was a good pound counterpart to Vigilante's use of the Lariat, and a Whip is not an uncommon weapon for villains or heroes. Zorro sometimes used a Whip in Western stories. While it is true that Vigilante is often portrayed as an outsider away from his Western roots, much like McLeod in The Big City, it's good to see him face off against a villain who uses a whip and rustles cars. I thought the use of the wheelchair as a distraction should he need it was clever, and it also provided an element of surprise since the police and costume crime fighters wouldn't realize he wasn't as handicapped as he seems. I'm looking forward to the time when Stuff gets his own cowboy sidekick outfit. I imagine that might be played for laughs. I'm developing a sense of Stuff as a sort of prototype of Jimmy Olsen, a young, slightly naive, but plucky fellow who idolizes his hero and wants to help him. Just keep him away from Professor Potter's wacky serums and inventions. And of course, Dave is, uh, is uh, referencing the adventures of Superman George Reeves series from the 1950s. Uh, back to the letter. Your talk about wartime rationing and production brought back memories of family stories. One of my grandmothers used to show us her old ration books and explain how and why they were used, and my other grandmother used to tell of her time working in a munitions factory. So to kids living in the relative abundance of the middle class in the 1960s, that's Dave himself, it was like hearing about an alien world. Well, it's really an alien world to kids growing up in the 2020s now, um, and to adults as well. Uh, they don't seem to understand that when... Uh, crisis hits the hardships that you need to do oh uh, so back to Dave sorry as always I really enjoyed your musical selections and I was glad to hear the version of Hot Rod Lincoln by Bill Kirchin and the Twang Bangers which was new to me now that Victoria Day has passed uh, he's speaking of our, our May 24th weekend in Canada 
I hope you begin to have some warmer weather and however frequently you get to release episodes of Prairie Justice, I will be here to listen. By the way, it was terrific to hear you read feedback from Michael Bradley. I love it when one of my favorite podcasters writes to another one. Live long and prosper, Dave McElvaney. Well, thank you, Dave. Much obliged. Uh, yes, that was wonderful to hear from Michael Bradley. It was a very, very nice surprise. And uh, yes, while the weather is, is interesting always in southern Alberta, they always say that if you don't like it, just have a nap. Um, about a week ago, we appeared to have some very unseasonably warm, blazing weather that you might seem to see in Jul- hot, late July or August. And... Uh, and then yesterday it started to rain and so now we're back to april weather in june you just never would know what you're going to have here just take a nap and you'll have different weather um going back uh, i have some uh, letters from some new people and i i guess i'll assume that they wouldn't mind having this uh read on the air if they do well uh you'll just have to send the scorpion after me this is from Scott Heilman, and I don't know where Scott is from, but uh, he says, Howdy, partner. Just wanted to send you an electro-telegram telling you how much I've enjoyed your Vigilante podcast. I heard you on the recent Superman 3 Movie Minute podcast, yes, with uh, Rob Kelly and Chris Franklin on the Fire and Water Network, and I, where I guessed it, and I wanted to check out your work. I first encountered Vidge in either JLA 78 or 79. I was a preschooler, so I couldn't read at the time, and I had it in my mind that the Lone Ranger had teamed up with the JLA. I eventually came around to understanding who Greg Saunders was. Next time I encountered him was one of those $1 World's Finest comics with Grey Morrow artwork, and that's the dollar comics from the late 70s and later read a chapter or two of the JLA JSA adventure that brought the seven soldiers to the present. Well, the present as it was in the 1970s. Since then, I've cherished any Greg Sanders appearance I can get, and I think the character with the right creative team would work nowadays if someone would give him a chance. Agreed. Agreed, Scott. I greatly enjoy you going through each of his appearances, including the seven soldiers of victory, you are a talented voice, um, talent. Uh, let's not call it talent. Uh, let's just call it a, a guy who had, does a lot of party tricks, Scott. Uh, you are quite creative in coming up with multiple consistent voices. Well, thank you there, Scott. Especially for leading comics number one. That must have been challenging. Oh, yes, it was. Oh, yes, it was. And it made for a day of recovery without having to talk after I finished that uh, and I appreciated you going through the history of each of the soldiers and I love that you discovered the Earth 2 Metamorpho who would have thunk I'm surprised that Roy Thomas or Grant Morrison would have not have latched onto that too great minds think alike I guess and oh I love how you connected the lost tribe that the shiny knight ran across was connected with Arak and the flying fox I'm a fan of retroactive continuity Heck, I'm just a fan of all things Golden Age Earth 2. I love everything from Airwave to Zatanna. Well, that's the gamut, including retroactive heroes like Amazing Man and the Young All-Stars. If I found a magic lamp, I'd wish DC would create an imprint called 
All-Star Comics under the editorial guidance of Roy Thomas, who would have control over any DC character from 1935 to the debut of John Jones. And uh, at the risk of the risking the ire of Diablo Frank, I believe that was about 1955. And, and back to Scott. Uh, and they would have such title as All-Star Adventure, All-Star Sensation, etc., etc. My next wish would be that all the creators who have passed came back to take part of this wish. Well, I'll, uh, I hope that you find that magic lamp. And Scott finishes up. So are you going to cover the serial? That's the, uh, the movie serial from 1947. Yes, I will when I get to that point in time, provided I can find a digital copy or online copy at that uh, by that point as I said before I do know where to buy a copy but I'm not sure I really want to send my credit card number to Pakistan so we will see uh, if they were to make a vidge movie or TV show who would you cast well um, I tend to do the casting game a lot, but I have to confess, I've never really thought about who Vigilante would cast. Um, recently, David Ace Gutierrez had a little thing about uh, who he thought the, a good voice actor would make for Vigilante and podcasts. And then the names came up, uh, such as Lee Majors and James Garner, among others. And uh, I think probably who I would cast... I don't know modern actors very well, but uh, I'm not sure what age he is. I think he's a little younger than me. Would be Nathan Fillion, who voices Vigilante on the uh, Justice League International car uh, animated series. And it doesn't help to me that he's also an Albertan. And Scott also asks, does the Vidge's supporting cast expand? And uh, I'm afraid, Scott, that all we'll ever see is uh, stuff. And every now and then, we will have Billy Gunn. Um, he does come back, not often, maybe once a year, once a couple of years, that sort of a thing. And does his love interest stay throughout his run? Nope. Betty Stewart uh, had enough of this dude vigilante and we've never seen her again. At least I haven't. Uh, there will be the odd romantic interest show up here and there, but uh, as always, Stuff just rides over the hill with his motorcycle, pretty much alone or with Stuff at the end of his stories. Um, I've never really seen a romantic interest and uh, unless till we get an ongoing or if we ever get an ongoing, it's, uh, you know, supporting characters or just what we, what we get. Let's just say the tone will change once we pass through Mort Weisinger and Mort Meskin's era. And I believe I have one letter, if this mailbox works properly. And this is from somebody called the Time Trust. And he's calling himself Doc Quantum from the Time Trust. And anybody that knows Justice Society and knows retroactive continuity knows what the Time Trust means. Uh, hi, Gord. Fellow Canadian comics fans reporting from BC's West Coast, but originally from the Prairies. Well, thank you, Doc. Uh, here's the secret handshake. Don't show anyone. From the moment I subscribed to your podcast, it's quickly become one of my faves. 
I love how you read out the comic book stories with unique voices for each character and with all the OTR sound effects included. I don't even know what OTR means, but I assume he means what I'm putting in um, as the underlying sound effects. Uh, it reminds me of how I read comics to my son at story time. I've been mostly reading classic Superboy and Richie Rich comics, but I may have to add some vigilante stories to the mix. Oh, classic Superboy. I don't know if my mind could handle that anymore. Anyway, I was wondering if you'd know the answer to my question. Has the vigilante's origin story ever been told? I know that in his first appearance there is a short blurb that describes how Greg Saunders avenged his father but has that ever been shown in story form did the vigilante ever get a real origin story and was there a story drawn by Gray Morrow in the 1970s that shows the vigilante's origin in greater detail or is that just my old memory playing tricks on me thanks and keep up the great work cheers Doc, uh, Doc Quantum who has a uh, website called www.5earths, uh, five as in the letter, earths.info. Um, okay, a lot to unpack in that last paragraph there, Doc. Uh, has the Vigilante's origin story ever been told? Of course, it was in that first story, that uh, briefly in a couple of panels, which has passed as a secret origin reprint um, for some reason. Um, now, in Action Comics, and it's coming up, and I can't remember if it's a 1943 or 1944, right off the top of my head, uh, Vidge does go back to his hometown, which is named, and um, spoilers, it's Hurricane Falls, Wyoming. Don't look for it on the map. I've tried. No, sorry. I lied there. It's not Hurricane Falls. It's Avalanche Falls, Wyoming. The closest I ever found uh, Avalanche Falls or an avalanche place with that uh, on the map in Wyoming was in the Yellowstone area. So uh, we'll look forward to that. And it wasn't really as a, as a story itself. He just goes home and recounts uh, what happened to him, I believe, to stuff. And you also ask, wasn't there a story drawn by Gray Morrow in the 1970s with the origin in it? And yes, there was. Uh, that would have been in the Dollar Comics version of World's Finest. Uh, don't have the number in front of me, but I believe it's somewhere in the range of, of issue number 250, I want to say. Uh, there was a brief point when the World's Finest uh, uh, Superman Batman comic uh, expanded to uh, to the dollar comic era and they had Green Arrow Black Canary the Earth 2 Wonder Woman of the World War 2 and in a sense since the Linda Carter Wonder Woman and of course Vigilante and he appeared in I believe five stories in that all drawn by Gray Morrow except for one of them and yes one of them did show the vigilante origin in flashback with a little better detail and it uh, spoilers because it's going to be a long time before I ever get to that story uh, the murderer of Tom Saunders was a outlaw by the name of Judas Priest who Greg Saunders did track down in the guise of the vigilante 
And I won't say too any more about that story, but it is a fantastic one. Um, Secret Origins, the reprint comic from the 1970s, reprinted Action Comics 42, which was actually covered on Fire and Water, and which, of course, I covered on the very first episode. And uh, Secret Origins, the the uh, the original material comic that has been covered by Ryan Daly on his Secret Origins podcast, in all those 50 issues, did an awful lot of Golden Age characters, but never got around to doing the vigilante because uh, I guess Roy Thomas was given the gate somewhere along the run in there, and uh, he was he started off with the Golden Age Superman and moved along and and did a lot of Justice Society members, Freedom Fighters, and other Golden Age characters. And um, I had heard a rumor that he had Gray Morrow tapped to draw the Vigilante origin story. And had that occurred, that would have been the first time it would have ever been appeared as its own story. And of course, um, I don't think that's ever going to happen. Uh, Roy Thomas no longer works for DC, or I don't believe has any interest in DC. And of course, unfortunately, Gray Morrow has passed, uh, passed on. So that's the answer to that. And thanks for the, all of that, uh, that uh, emails. And uh, I believe I had Twitter comments, and I also had a. Uh, Twitter comments uh, complimenting the show uh, from the Weird Warriors podcast. And if you haven't heard that one, that's an amazing podcast. Uh, when I first saw it and I went, oh, I don't think I ever read Weird War Tales, but uh, I do like World Second World War stories of Joe Kubert and, and, um, and that era. So I turned on and um, those boys, they're, they're running a pretty good show over there. So uh, tune into that, and of course, also tune in to the um, All Star Squadron podcast, which is done by Billy D and Herman, and that is called A World on Fire. And occasionally on Fire and Water on their Sunday shows, they have the Justice Society of America presents. So that's all in the Earth Two news that I can give you, and. Um, I'm just going to send you out. I hope you enjoyed this quick and dirty podcast uh, recounting Stargirl, and we'll see you down the road. Bye now. In the corner of a dark bar room Said a little cowboy singing western tunes Singing songs that he learned as a child All about the West back when it was wild well, So long, partners. You've been listening to Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. All materials used in Prairie Justice are believed to be of fair use and remain the copyright of all copyright holders. Stories, images, and the character of Greg Saunders, the Vigilante, and all other characters used are the property of DC Comics and DC Entertainment. Feedback for Prairie Justice can be left on Facebook under the name Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. Email 
can go to vigilantecast at gmail.com. Website is www.rangergordsroundup, all one word, at dot wordpress.com. And we sure hope to see you all back again for another ride with the Cowboy Crusader. Vaya con Dios, compadres, eh? Cause he's the last of the singing cowboy.